Mass shootings are changing the character of public life in the United States. Despite widespread support for laws that would reduce access to firearms among people who make violent threats or have a history of violent behavior, action has been slow. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Garen Wintemute, Director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Wintemute has written a perspective article about policies that could prevent mass shootings and other forms of firearm violence. Dr. Wintemute, what do we know about the trajectory of gun violence in the United States? Is there evidence that deaths from gun violence and mass shootings are becoming more frequent? Yes, there is. I'll take a longer-term perspective. First, the overall rate of fatal firearm violence in the 21st century was absolutely dead level, with suicide increasing and homicide decreasing by almost exactly offsetting amounts until a couple of years ago. Suicide continues to increase, but homicide is now increasing as well. This started in 2015, and the most recent data we have from CDC are from 2016, but the preliminary information we have is that those increases have continued in 17 and 18. The frequency of public mass shootings has also increased beginning actually several years ago, and That frequency has to be analyzed over time because obviously they're relatively rare events. But over time, there is a clear increase. In your article, you describe two policies that you say could prevent many gun deaths, including the requirement that firearm sales involve background checks on purchasers. How common are background check laws and how strong is the evidence that they actually reduce rates of gun violence? Background checks are required under federal law, so everywhere, when the sale is made by a licensed retailer. The difficulty arises when the sales being made by a private party. There are only a few states that require a background check even when the sale is being made by a private party. And let me sketch this out. If I'm a retailer and I'm selling a gun, the customer has to go through a background check to prove that they're not a prohibited person. There also is a record kept so that we can track the ownership of the gun if need be. But in a private party sale in most of the country, Because there's no background check, a prohibited person can purchase a gun without being detected. I've actually watched hundreds of these transactions at gun shows around the country where you can see them. The transactions can be completed in less than a minute. If I'm a prohibited person, I'm obviously not going to volunteer that information to the private party seller. And the seller is savvy enough not to ask the question. So that's conceptually the loophole that comprehensive background check statutes are designed to close. The difficulty is in the implementation of these laws. The commentary identifies a number of specific ways in which comprehensive background check laws don't work as well as we would like. The result being that if we look at comprehensive background check laws, generically speaking, it's hard to show a beneficial impact on rates of firearm violence. There is an exception. There's a subset of comprehensive background check laws called permit to purchase laws, where not only do all purchasers have to undergo a background check, they have to get a permit, typically from law enforcement, in order to purchase the firearm. Permit to purchase laws have been associated repeatedly with beneficial effects. Let me make one more point. The commentary and the research it's based on are not arguing that comprehensive background checks are innately not worthwhile. Very much the opposite. We are saying it's a great idea, and here are some specific defects in implementation that we need to address. 
So the second policy that you describe is gun violence restraining orders. So how do those work from state to state? Who decides when the guns are taken away and for how long? Comprehensive background checks work at the population level. They apply to whole classes of people, the people who are prohibited from purchasing firearms. The gun violence restraining order takes the opposite approach. It's directed at people who are posing an imminent hazard, either to others or to themselves, but who are not prohibited persons, who have firearms and under current law are able to keep them. The situation that they are focused on is one that clinicians and law enforcement professionals encounter over and over again. We know that something really bad is about to happen, but there's nothing we can do about it under current law. So what a GVRO, to use the abbreviation, allows is this. Under those circumstances, members of law enforcement or family members, the specifics actually vary from state to state, can go to a judge just as in a case of domestic violence and basically make the argument, Your Honor, there's potential for risk here in the near term. Firearms are part of that potential for risk. We ask that you intervene. Following specific rules of evidence, as is done for domestic violence, under those circumstances, the judge can issue a restraining order, and I'll speak from the California model because it's the one I know, a restraining order that's only good for three weeks because there's been no formal hearing. And that restraining order says this person cannot purchase or possess firearms for the next three weeks. In most cases, the individuals who are subject to the order have firearms, so the orders come routinely with search warrants so that they can be used if needed to recover the firearms. You say that even with these policies in place, defects in design and implementation mean that they'll fall short of their maximum potential. So what needs to happen to increase the likelihood that gun-related laws such as these work as intended? We're talking mostly about comprehensive background check statutes at this point. The single most important thing is for the prohibiting events to be reported. The commentary talks about an example, and there are a large number of examples, of people who, although prohibited, were able to pass background checks and purchase firearms because the prohibiting events were not in the data that the background checks were run on. The commentary talks about two mass shootings that exemplify this. Something that really astonished me as I started doing the research on this is the fact that other than for federal agencies, it's not even a requirement that prohibiting events be reported. Reporting is voluntary, as a result of which the federal government has set up incentive programs for for states to do this. But even when it's required, it's not done. The military alone, we've learned, has probably not reported tens of thousands of prohibiting events it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that there are hundreds of thousands or possibly even millions of prohibiting events that aren't in the data the background checks are run on. Finally, you say in your article that there's widespread support, even among gun owners, for both comprehensive background checks and gun violence restraining orders. So what's keeping these policies from being enacted on a wider scale? Is that going to change? Are states going to start adopting them? Well, first to quantify, we know this best for comprehensive background checks. Support in the general population now approaches 90%, but it's at about 80% among self-identified firearm owners and about 70% for self-identified members of the National Rifle Association. So support is both broad and deep. We are seeing movement at the state level. 
prior to this year, there were five states that had something like a gun violence restraining order statute. Florida, which experienced the Parkland shooting, which could have been prevented by a gun violence restraining order. Florida was state number six, and there are now 13. We're seeing movement on this particular policy, unlike anything we've seen in recent years. So I'm actually quite optimistic. Thank you, Dr. Wintermuth.